Hebrews. We will read our text this evening, which is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And then I will ask uh, my brother Steve French to lead us in prayer for God's blessing upon his word. Let us hear God's word. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. listening, Lord, to what you have for us. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear, our, uh, our hearts to receive what you have for us, that you would write your word upon our hearts, that we wouldn't sin against you. Lord, use, I pray, the, the preaching of your word here to further sanctify us, to be further equipped to build your kingdom here on earth, and help us to sit attentively now at your feet in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come to this text this evening, it's helpful for us to remember and bear in mind the context of why this passage of Scripture was written. This entire book was given to God's people at a time of great persecution. It is dated somewhere in the early days of the apostles as uh, we read the account of the church in the book of Acts. Uh, we see the persecution rising up to meet the advance of the gospel. Uh, the unbelieving Jews having great zeal for the blotting out of the name of Jesus, uh, turning to and increasingly the Roman authorities uh, of their own, finding this to be troublesome and disturbing. And even as they begun, begin to understand the claims of the gospel, that there is another king, one Jesus, uh, to recognize a threat to the claims of the emperor himself. And so we see this increased persecution um, in, in a very dramatic escalation uh, from the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus very quickly to the stoning of Stephen and on to a much broader persecution uh, throughout the known world. And in this day, uh, it was tempting to many, especially from an Old Testament background, uh, to realize that uh, the God who has spoken through the Old Testament is the same God we're worshiping, and he is um, accepted. This isn't where the point of contention is. It is specifically this name of Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ, this message of Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. Um, we're, we're seeing our homes taken. We're losing our livelihoods. We are seeing family members imprisoned or even killed. And the temptation was uh, their safety in the religion of the Old Testament. There's safety in just stopping short at the Old Testament. We can still worship God as we always have. Why do we have to undergo such persecution? Why do we have to put our family at such jeopardy uh, over this latest development in the history of God's dealings with his people? 
And so this letter is written. It is written to uh, point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and to uh, the fact that there is no turning back. There is no uh, halting the hand of God or stopping and having his pleasure with yesterday's revelation when he has continued on with the gift of his very son. And it goes through comparing the Lord Jesus to all those types and shadows through the book and of showing that he is worth suffering for as we even begin to see in our text this evening. And so the book opens with this contrast. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, we see here the, uh, a summary of the Old Testament. Uh, the evidence of redemption, the manifestation of God's redemptive purpose, the heart and soul of his covenant dealings in the Old Testament is, is here summarized and is found in the amazing fact that God has made himself known to us. In the past, this was in many parts. Uh, this, this reference that's translated many times can also be translated many fragments. Either one, I think, conveys something of what is intended here. Many parts, many fragments of revelation. And it was in many ways, in riddles and dreams and visions and audible voices, pillars of cloud and fire, divine acts of salvation, such as the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and so forth. All of this revelation of God in the Old Testament was not only manifesting who he was, but also his redemptive purpose toward his people. He hasn't stayed afar off. He has come and he has spoken. And he hasn't simply spoken to our better understanding or certainly not to our ultimate destruction, but he has come to reveal his purpose of salvation. And this salvation of his people was administered through the prophets primarily in the Old Testament and is here described under the term God spoke. God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. This emphasizes that God's word primarily, his declaration of purpose, his explanation of events was in the very forefront. It was in response to this word of God that his people were called to live in faith. God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. They were his messengers. He came upon them and inspired them with his spirit, and he put his word in their mouth. They came saying, Thus saith the Lord, and the message of God was given to his people. And if the people responded with faith, believing the message, it resulted in life and blessing, the very salvation that God described to them. However, if the people hardened their hearts and rejected the word, the word brought judgment. In every case, the word was how God dealt with his people. It was the word of God that called forth their faith. Think of this in particular, just take an example from the Old Testament. The faith was called upon with the word of God, the promise of God, the declaration of God, for example, to his people in Egypt. I'm going to lead you out. I'm going to give you the promised land. His promise to Abraham, I'm going to give you the promised land. It is in response to that word of God that faith is called for. Well, Lord, I believe you. I'm going to believe your word. Once we see the event unfold, then 
Certainly, there's still an occasion for joy and rejoicing in the saving act of God, but faith in that sense is given way to sight when the people of Israel have seen the Red Sea parted and they've seen the, the army of Pharaoh destroyed and they've seen all the plagues of Egypt. Well, they can certainly believe that God has been with them to save them, but even then, it is His Word to explain that and it must be accompanied by faith. How many experience the saving power of God in deliverance from Egypt, but went on with a heart of unbelief to perish in the wilderness. Now we see the contrast then drawn between that, between the long ago or in the past. It's emphasizing that this is what is behind and what follows. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. In the entire first section of this chapter which we have read this is the the main verb uh, uh, undergirding the whole passage he has spoken to us by his son and the contrast here is made between the former day and this day these last days they're they're referred to the last days or the latter days is a phrase and a concept that is developed and formed in the old testament It was used to anticipate the promised coming of the Messiah and the radical transformation that he would bring. For example, you'll remember in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, verses 14 through 17, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Notice this phrase here in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. This is from a quote from Joel chapter 2. We see this same reference to Uh, what is translated the last days here in Hosea 3, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Or in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now, what what is he doing? He's pointing them back to the Old Testament, which is anticipating a fulfillment and a glorious day, the latter days, the days they're longing for when all of those types and shadows, all of those little glimpses and fragments of revelation are finally manifested in fullness with the great deliverance that was only anticipated in the Old Testament. And so this use of the latter days itself in Hebrews 1 would certainly call the Old Testament mind back to these promises and longings in the Old Testament. And so if, if long ago in the past, but in these last days... What has changed? He has spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews 1 uses this phrase in understanding to note the heart of the difference between the former days and these last days which have finally arrived. Formerly, God spoke through many servants. There's a contrast between these many prophets and the one Son. 
And he, it also is related to that, a contrast between many small occasions of deliverance and many small messages of God's purpose for his people. These were carried one message at a time, one prophet at a time, showing one glimpse after another of the blessing of relationship with God. But now the great glory of the last days is found in God speaking to us by His Son. The verb in this instance is in the heiress case, which denotes completed action. In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. That This is the last days. This is the final word. This is the final act, the great act of redemption and deliverance and revelation that the Old Testament was looking forward to and longing for for millennia. God now has spoken. And He has spoken in a way that far exceeds His revelation in the Old Testament. He has spoken by His Son. There will never be a successor that can reveal something more than the Son does. He is the final word. He completes God's revelation of blessing and restoration through covenant relationship with the triune God. Now, as we look at this phrase, but in these last days, notice what this says. He has spoken to us by His Son. The sweetness of that. It should thrill each of us to to realize, again, we, we take the Bible up and we read it. We've heard the gospel and hopefully believed it. Those things can become commonplace and familiar to us. We should never lose the wonder and the amazement just pausing and realizing that God was under no necessity to reveal himself to us. He was under no necessity to draw near to us and to welcome us, especially in a context of sin. There was no compulsion upon God, but He acted upon His mere good pleasure. And these were things that were astounding to anyone who saw this happen. First Peter chapter 1 tells us that the angels of heaven just marvel at what they see of the unfolding of God's purpose toward fallen humanity. These are the things into which the angels long to look. They're just amazed to think that the God of heaven, uh, the Most High, the Almighty, would come near to sinners and extend His hand of mercy to them. This God, out of His grace and a love which we can never justify, has created us and even in spite of sinfulness and depravity has drawn near to show His goodness and power to save us. Now, it's, it's, I think, helpful to realize where the difference here is not found. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is not found in whether one was the Word of God and the other is not. It's not found in the authority of the message. For the very Spirit of Christ, this very Son, His Spirit was speaking through the Old Testament prophets as we read in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That Spirit constrained them 
to speak His very word. When they came and said, Thus saith the Lord, they were delivering the very word of God. The difference isn't that one is the word of God and the other is not, but the difference is found in the capacity of the messenger. It took a host of people in the Old Testament, each of which so limited in what they could reveal of the Father, each given just a small piece of this glorious revelation. Related to this, the difference that's highlighted here is the relationship between God and the former messengers contrasted with God and this son. They were imperfect. These Old Testament prophets were themselves in need of salvation. They were finite. They were mortal. They were only capable of delivering these little bits and pieces of the revelation of God's glory and passing off the scene of this world all too quickly. They were tools in the hand of God almost as it were, little bits of material in which he wrote his word, the messengers who relayed what they were told. But the Son, the Son is unlike these Old Testament prophets. Notice the, the act of redemption that accompanies the word of God. Just as Moses was the prophet in the Old Testament who came as the prophet of God to bring deliverance from Egypt, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come and personally accomplished redemption from sin, from the very kingdom of darkness for all time, for God's people, leading them out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so this act of redemption is accompanied with the stature of the messenger and the revelation of God through Him. Notice that, uh, you may not have noticed this, I hadn't really thought of it, But it never says in the New Testament, never says in the Gospels, and the word of the Lord came to Jesus. Those formulas that we read all through the Old Testament. Never says that. Jesus never begins or introduces his message with, thus saith the Lord. He's unlike these Old Testament prophets. God took his word and put it in their mouth and they were to go and speak that word on his behalf. But the son is different. He's not just a messenger who is given this small message to deliver. The Son is unique. The the English that we have really struggles to translate uh, this this Greek well. Um, in, In these last days, he has spoken to us. Literally, the Greek would say, by Son. It's not definite. It's not by the Son. It doesn't even have this possessive explicitly stated the his isn't there in the greek if you will it's it's an effort to capture the meaning of it but this reference to the son he is unique and he is it son is indefinite in this case not because not 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 conveying that he is a son one among many but more because this term completely exhausts the category of son. There is only one son. There's no need to identify, well, which son are you talking about? There is only one son of God. It functions much like a proper noun in English. If we refer to someone by their proper name, we, we, we don't put a definite article on it or 
indicate one among many. It is that person who is in view, and so it is here. God has spoken to us by Son. There is only one Son. And the following phrases and clauses that follow this describe the significance of what this term Son means by describing this person for us. Who is this Son that God now has spoken through? Whom He appointed as heir of all things. The Son is so loved and so trusted and so near to the Father that He has been named heir of all things. Everything. Nothing has been withheld. Even within the, the life and the experience, in, in, in human experience, we have an heir that becomes our successor upon death. But here Jesus, even, it's not that the Father's died, but God has, the Father has given over to Him as His heir the inheritance, everything that He ever made. He's reserved nothing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul even says, now when it says He put all things in subjection under His feet, He naturally excluded Himself from that category. But that's the only exception. Everything has been given to the Son. As the God-man, the Son has come to earth, accomplished His work, and has returned to heaven now to claim this inheritance. He has claimed all things that the Father has made him, named Him, appointed Him as heir of. He is alive forevermore, and He is sitting, even today at the Father's right hand, holding this inheritance, administering this inheritance as by this God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Now, you can jump over to Hebrews chapter 2 and see this thought expanded in Hebrews 2 verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under His feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. And so here, this Son that God has spoken through, He's spoken to us by His Son, well, the first thing we see about him is that he is the exalted heir of all things. There's nothing that doesn't belong to him. There is no one that is trusted like this by the Father to give all things over to him. He is unique in this position of honor. The next phrase we see, "...through whom also he created the world." Not only is the Son the Messiah King, He's the Son of the woman, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, this one who was promised and now eventually has inherited on behalf of mankind all things. The Son is also the eternal Son of God, of the Blessed Trinity, one with the Father and the Spirit. 
He is very God of very God. He is creator. He knows the thoughts of God because he is God. God creates the world through him. He knows the purpose of God in creating this world. What is God's plan for this world? Well, the Lord Jesus knows. He was with him. He was with the Father and the Spirit. And he created the world participating with the other members of the Trinity, the creation of all that exists. And so, again, this is going to help us understand the the quality of his revelation, his ability to reveal God's saving purposes through his word to his people. But here he is. No one else is like this. Only the Son created the world, just as he alone is the heir of all things. Now let's look in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This term radiance is it's not passive in, in being a reflection of the glory of God. This particular phrase is, is speaking of the radiation of the glory of God in an active sense. He radiates the glory of God because of who He is as the eternal Son of God. He is the effulgence of God's glory, actively generating from His own person the glory of God. This isn't, again, just a passive reflection. Notice the the next phrase here, the exact imprint of His nature. And by the way, these terms that are being used the, the writer of Hebrews is struggling to put this in words. That term for radiance, it's the only time in the New Testament that the term is used. There's, there is nothing else to compare this to. It is difficult to describe the, the relation of the Son to the Father with adequate terms. But he goes on in this phrase. He is the exact imprint of his nature. Just and, and the term here of, of impression, it, it calls to mind by use uh, the, the thought of striking a coin. Just as a coin is a true representation of the die, what, what will the coin show you? Whatever the die has on it, it is a perfect correspondence. So the Son is a true image of the Father. They perfectly correspond whatever the one has the other also possesses you know in in many bygone years i used to dabble in coin collecting and you know what makes a a coin somewhat valuable is its irregularity typically and why would why would that coin have for example something upside down on it or a special little mark in in a special place well it's because when those coins were being struck, the die had that imperfection on it. That's what, that's what the author here is trying to convey, that there is nothing about God that isn't represented in Jesus Christ. He completely represents exactly the imprint of the divine nature. He's the true image of the Father. There is nothing 
in the Father's perfections, which is not manifested in the Son. It reminds us of John 14, verses 6 through 10, where Jesus is teaching his disciples and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Look at verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his Works. There is this mystic union between the persons of the Trinity. They are inseparable, distinct but inseparable. The Father dwelling in the Son, the Spirit dwelling in the Father and the Son. Such that when we think of, well, what could we, how can we have a faithful representation, a faithful source of revelation of who God is? Jesus tells his disciples, when you are with the Son and you see the Son and you hear the Son and you receive the revelation of the Son, you are seeing the Father. Nothing can be added to the Son's revelation of God. There's nothing more to add. As we read in Colossians 2 verse 9, In Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so, again, thinking of God and His grace to reveal Himself and how He dealt with us through those very limited capacities, the means of the Old Testament prophets who themselves were sinful, themselves needed redemption, and then contrast that with now, in these last days, God has spoken to us by Son. Who is this Son? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And the word for universe, panta in the Greek, it literally means everything. It's everything. That Jesus, as the Son of God, not only is the creator, not only is the heir of all things, not only is the one who radiates the glory of God and is the exact imprint of his nature, but he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's hanging upon the word of Jesus. Apart from that, everything falls to the ground. Everything is lost and vanishes and perishes. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is bearing, is the term, is carrying. You know, we, we have this image in Western literature of, of the man holding the world up, Atlas in the Greek mythology. Uh, that, of course, is a very pale even concept of what we're talking about. We're not talking about the planet Earth. We're talking about the universe, talking about everything in the universe being upheld simultaneously and perpetually simply by the power of the Word of God. This Son is upholding the universe by the word of His power. The same powerful word that could call being 
from nothing. That could create the world out of nothing simply by speaking. That is the power of His Word upholding. The revelation of God is by His Son, and the revelation of the Son is spoken in the very Word of God, the same Word which upholds the life and balance and existence of everything. What else do we see of this Son? At the end of verse 3, After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here we begin to see the, the scriptural theology of this inheritance. What was the Son being rewarded for? Well, not only is He the Creator, not only is He the perfect representation and reflection and radiance of the glory of God, not only is He the sustainer of all things as, as heir, holding everything up by His word of power and accomplishing His will within it, but we're reminded here of this great work of redemption that he has accomplished. Something that the, the work of Moses in Egypt is just a little glimmer of. This kingdom of darkness that the Lord Jesus has over, overcome. The, the sinfulness of his people that he has conquered and purified. Uh, is something that no man could ever dream of, but the, the Son of God come from heaven. He has completed this. He has lived his life. He has accomplished redemption. He has earned the blessings of God for his people, and he has paid the very curses of the covenant in his death for his people. And this accomplishes the forgiveness and the purification, the ultimate deliverance from sin in his children. He was the only one sent by the Father to accomplish this redemption. He was the only one who could do it. No other could stand forward and even offer to undertake this task. He has drunk the cup of God's wrath. He has taken hell upon himself there upon the cross. He has rebuffed every moment of temptation for an entire life of obedience under the worst temptations that the evil one could conjure. And he has accomplished all of that now. And he has taken his rightful place. Notice again the connection here. After making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it's, it's a statement of the victory of Jesus Christ, of the accomplishment of everything that God had promised through the Old Testament. All those glorious promises about the latter days that were anticipated by the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus has actually accomplished them. He's done what... No one else could do and brought about a deliverance from the guilt and stain of sin. And now he has sat down. He has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. And he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has completed this period of humiliation and has entered into his exaltation. 
And this is how God is revealing himself now in these last days. It is solely through his son. His son who, as we see, is speaking to us the very word of God. It's the son who was even at work in those Old Testament prophets. He is now taking the body of Scripture, the revelation of God in his hand, and revealing the Father through it to us, having accomplished all of this in light of who he is. In verse 4, "...having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." How much more superior is the Son of God to these angels? Well, it's only matched by the superiority of the name he has inherited. He is the Most High God. He is sitting on the right hand of the Majesty on high. He has obtained the name that is above every name, as we read in Philippians chapter 2. There is no position of greater honor in the universe. There's no position of greater authority or privilege than that which Jesus Christ occupies. And he is the one that God is loving his people through, that he is speaking to his people through, that he is revealing his saving purposes for his people through. As Peter declared to the council of those unbelieving men there in Acts chapter 4, when being questioned about healing uh, the man there at the gate beautiful, and what name have you done this? Well, in his answer in Acts 4 verse 12, he says so clearly, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to the Father, as we read in John chapter 14, verse 6. There is no other revealer of the Father. The Son alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And God is so gracious as to welcome all. He will cast aside none who comes to Him through this name of Jesus and so as we begin to see something of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and this day in which we live, these latter days, what should we learn from this passage for our own lives? Well, I hope we've been reminded that it is only by God's gracious choice that he reveals himself to us. We are so familiar with the reality of his revelation. We, we have Bibles all over the place. We take them up, I trust, and read them often. I hope that we don't forget just how amazing it is that the God who is the Most High, far out of reach of thought or imagination, has come and made himself known. And he has shown us such amazing favor as to accomplish a purification from sin so that we can enter into joyful fellowship with our God. And that, that only comes through Jesus Christ. All of this is held in the hands of Jesus. He's the heir of all things. What blessings would you have from God? Jesus is holding them. He, everything is subject to him. What what deliverance would you seek from God? Well, you need to seek it from Jesus Christ, his anointed king, because all things have been given over to him and are subject 
to him. And so in the original day of such persecution, already we see just the, the vanity, the foolishness, the, the futility of trying to, to back up and say, wow, this is starting to cost us. Let's, let's rewind. Let's back up to before God's Son came from heaven and paid for our sins with his life. Um, let's see if we can somehow act as though that hasn't happened. Of course, we cannot do that. And we would never want to when we see what God has accomplished for us in his Son. The second thing that we see in our passage this evening is that God alone can reveal himself. He is the one who speaks. He spoke in the Old Testament through those prophets, and he has spoken to us by his Son. The imaginations and the thoughts of men are of no help. It it is of no purpose. In fact, it is idolatry for us to seek to conjure our own thoughts and ideas of who God is. We cannot comprehend the one, as we read in 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. I'll make an application in that context to this current fascination with uh, this video series, The Chosen, that you may have heard of. But it's a modern example of how sinful men want something other, something more than what God has provided. Now think of that for a moment. The God who has loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us is the same God who knows and who with love has purposed and determined how to reveal his glory to us and to our salvation. And he's done so. He's given us his word, and we would receive the blessings of redemption, but then reject the method of his revelation and say, well, we we need more than this. It's so prideful, and it's so arrogant, and it's so misguided. And I want you to hear this clearly. It's not even the acknowledged unbelief of many who are at work in that series. They're confessing, admittedly, we're, we're not all Christians. It, that's not the big problem. It's not even that there have been pride flags visible on set and the producer has defended this as true to the life of Christ. That's not the big problem here. It's not even the fact that the words that Jesus speaks in that series are drawn as freely from the Book of Mormon as they are from the Gospels. There are phrases spoken from the mouth of Christ in that series that are being drawn from the Book of Mormon, not the Word of God. That's not even the big problem. It's not even that these producers have used probable fiction to fill in the picture of what they think Jesus would have done and said in instances where we have no record. But the big problem, the basic problem with this that is fundamental to the whole enterprise is that it is not God's revelation of himself. Only God can reveal himself with truth and power, with the power to create the world, the power to uphold the world, the power to forgive sin. What is the point of Jesus apart from God's saving purpose toward us? God alone has the power to accomplish anything good, and he does so through his word. 
It is a outright open violation, a breaking of the second commandment that leads to an idolatrous concept of God. You are running into people who are telling you things about Jesus that are completely made up or even drawn from the Book of Mormon, which openly rejects the divinity of the Son of God. And they are coming excited about what they learned about Jesus. And it is, it is lies, it is the false imaginations of men. What sinner could ever adequately represent Jesus Christ, even if it was allowable in that sense that there wasn't a second commandment. What sinner could say, I'm going to show you what the Son of God was like and, and be anywhere close? The whole point is he's not one of us. He's not a sinner. He's perfect. And he's not just a man, as all of us are. But the unique thing about Jesus Christ was his divinity he had a divine nature he's the eternal son of god no no sinful fallen child of adam could ever picture that and not be lying about who the son of god is and so i would urge you and and as you have occasion if you're speaking to one of these who are well-intentioned i'm sure but so caught up in this excitement it is a denial of God's rightful place to speak to us and to reveal himself to us. I want you to notice also in our text that all of, all of this revelation of God's saving purpose for us is summarized and described as him speaking. He, he spoke to the fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And again, this isn't to somehow broaden the understanding or the term of speech to include nonverbal saving acts of God on our behalf. That's not the point of this. But it is to exalt the place of God's word in his redemptive purpose. Everything that God has done or will do, he does according to his word. And our understanding of what God has done and will do, is dependent upon His Word. As Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2 states, God has exalted His name and His Word above all things, and He watches over His Word that nothing of it should fall to the ground. We also see in the Lord Jesus Christ another reminder to us of how it is God has seen fit to reveal himself to us. And it's not through these primarily visual means that our culture has such an appetite for. The revelation of God's glory and his saving purpose in the earthly life of Jesus was not predominantly one of visual revelation. Think about that. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God walking on this earth. And how does he reveal the Father? Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be content. Well, Jesus looked just like any other man. You remember from this morning, John the Baptist said, I wouldn't have known it except the Father had told me, the one that you see the Spirit come upon in the form of a dove. He is the Lamb of God. I wouldn't have even picked him out of a lineup. There was nothing in his appearance that was unusual 
or remarkable, as we even read in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah 53. He came in the form of a servant. He, he put aside the outward demonstration of his glory. Now, certainly he, he's manifesting that glory uh, today. You can read the account of John seeing the resurrected Lord Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 for some idea of what that looked like. But in the earthly ministry of Jesus, for all of those years, it was only very, very brief glimpses of the visual glory of God, such as on the mountain of transfiguration, where there was some visual correspondence to the truth of who he was. It was not even the saving acts of Christ in the supernatural miracles he worked in raising the dead, healing the sick, etc., which best accomplished the revelation of God's glory. It was the Word of God. Even when Jesus walked among us, even when he was raising the dead and showing us, even in his acts, the saving purpose of God, it was still the Word of God that was primary. We see that, for example, in Mark chapter 1. Early in the ministry of Jesus, uh, the crowds are flocking. Why? Sadly, not to hear the Word of God, but because of all the signs and the miracles and the healing that He was doing. And the people were looking for Him. He had gone apart to a desolate place and prayed. And in verse 36, Simon and those who were with Him searched for Him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Notice verse 38. He said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The sinful condition is such that even in the face of the most stupendous miracles, raising the dead, healing the blind, if it is not the Word of God calling them to life, they will be completely unmoved by that. That's even described explicitly in the parable, not the parable, the account of the rich man and Lazarus as the rich man who is unnamed and has no legacy recorded in Scripture other than torment in the pit. He, he says, well, well, can't you send him back? If someone rises from the dead, surely my brother's will repent, and the answer to him is sobering. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. And if they won't hear the very voice of God speak the truth to them, then someone could rise from the dead every day of the week, and it would not be to their salvation. Let's see in Hebrews, back to our text as we conclude here. This is the conclusion that the author draws to his own point. So, so God has revealed and has spoken to us in these last days in his Son. So what should we do about that? Jesus is in heaven now. How can we interact with and receive this revelation of God through his Son? Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 and following. What's the conclusion of recognizing the Son is this unique and amazing and almighty revealer of the Father in verse 1 of Hebrews 2? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. How is it that Jesus is revealing the Father to us? He's still doing it, even as He did in His earthly ministry, through the declaration of the Word of God. We must therefore pay much closer attention to what we've heard, that Word of God that now the Son is taking in His hand and declaring to us. And so we must listen carefully to the Word of God. It is described as a theme throughout Hebrews in Hebrews 4.12 as the living and active Word of God, sharper than a two-edged sword as the word of righteousness upon which our faith must feed to grow strong in Hebrews 5.13. In Hebrews 6.5, as the goodness of the word of God, which corresponds to the powers of the age to come. In Hebrews 11, verse 3, as the word which created the world. In Hebrews 12.19, as the word which shook the mountain in the revelation on Sinai. And finally, in Hebrews 13, 7, as the word which the leaders of the church are to speak to God's people and thereby have their respect. The word of God. This is how Jesus is revealing and unfolding the glory of God to us and leading us into that great act of salvation that he has accomplished and will apply to us as he gives us the faith that he calls forth by his word. As we think about even our, our daily devotions, the attention that we should be giving to the word of God in our times of corporate worship, when the word of God is being proclaimed, it, it is not time for uh, doodling in our notebooks. It's not time for uh, practicing our origami with the bulletins, it is time to give attention, the closest possible attention to the Word of God because His own Son, the very imprint of His nature, is revealing the Father to us. This is how He nourishes our faith and strengthens us in Jesus Christ. And so the Lord Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith as we see in Hebrews 12. And we are to keep our eyes fixed upon him. And as that passage even goes on to say, we are to remember the exhortation of God's word to us. And down in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so we have this picture of the Son of God seated on this right hand of glory in heaven, the heir of all things, actively, and in the, even in the writer of Hebrews' time as he is writing this, he is warning from heaven. He is speaking. See that you don't refuse him. How does Jesus speak to his church? It is through the word of God, which we are blessed to have in the scriptures. And so let us pray that God would give us the faith to receive his word, and then we will continue our worship by coming to the Lord's table. Oh God, we do thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for the redemption of your hand. Lord, only you 
had the will and the power and the purpose to effect a redemption for such a lost people as we. Even the angels of heaven marvel at what you have done and continue to do. And we bless your name, Lord Jesus, that you came from heaven, that you were willing to be humbled and now are exalted and have this glorious place of honor and power. We thank you that you are the heir of all things and all things are subjected to your feet. We thank you, Lord, that you are speaking and warning even today from heaven. Whenever your word is opened and read, whenever it is faithfully preached, you are calling your people to heed the word of God and to receive the revelation of the Father. We pray that we might receive it with faith and believing in him. We might enter into that eternal life that you have prepared for your children. We pray that you would bless us now as we come to your table. We, we thank you for giving us this sacrament. We ask that it would be to the nourishment and strengthening of our faith. Please bless us as we come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.